Because the boys are back in town. Oh, that's right. That's us. We're your boys. Do you think I should stop doing musical intros when we already cut and paste our own music into the musical intro? Maybe. I mean, I don't know. We'll see if they find it endearing or if they're like, just do one. Welcome back to the D-O-double-N podcast. I'm your host, Rob Thornhill, with my glamorous co-host, Ethan Thomas. I am wearing quite the flamboyant pink shirt right now. It's juicy and it's nice. I appreciate that. How are you doing? Doing all right, as far as things are going here. How about yourself? You uh, hanging in there? The gout has come back with a vengeance. It has. Because I've spent a whole week drinking beer nonstop, no water. Oof. I don't want to blame for my, but myself for that. I literally cannot walk downstairs. So bad. You know, it's kind of funny. Well, I say funny. Gout is not funny. It's a debilitating disease. But Thank you. Like, when you're, when you're in America, gout's not very common. And so when you hear, like, oh, he's got the gout, it's like you, you usually picture an old person and typically someone who's, like, very... Very obese, like not like oh, your typical yeah, American no, fatty, but it's like similar in it's a similar kind of issue in England. But yeah, either way, not fun. I remember I forgot the first trip we took where your gout was really acting up. If it was uh, Macau or if it was uh, Beijing, but like it always acts up whenever I'm on a holiday. <laughs> you just end up limping like, around the city. Yeah, it was. It's not good. So we had a couple of mentions from my last po- podcast. We said it would be convenient if it was on um, audio streaming. First goal is Spotify, and if we get more than three listeners and there's demand, we'll put it up somewhere else, I guess. I'll give it some credit. We've gotten at least a dozen No, people. I know. It's a, it's, a, it's a Christmas joke, Ethan. Yes. Right in the middle of June. Right in the middle of June. Sweet. Yeah. Should we start the pod? Oh, yeah. Should we start the pod in earnest? Let's get into it. What's going on in the world of music news? Well, I've got two interesting bits of news that are, that are kind of sad. I've got three things to talk about. The first one is sad, so let's get that one over with. If you, I say, do you not want to make like a sad sandwich? Like, like sad, good, sad. I hate to be a total asshole, but like, it's sad news, but it's about people that most people aren't going to be that sad about. <laughs> it's not like, Michael Jackson is dead. Oh, God. It's like, these are just artists that... Children are, of the world rejoice. Listen, I'm just saying, <laughs> this was officially diagnosed by doctors saying this was the cause of death uh, due to a certain, certain uh, virus. Uh, we lost one of the vocalists behind Millie Vanilli. And if you don't know who Millie Vanilli is, it was a very famous pop duo in the 80s. But here's the thing, they got super popular because it was like these two handsome dudes and like they were dancing up there and they oh, were wait, singing with I the headsets. I've heard about it. Isn't it this, the guys that didn't actually sing any of their own songs? They never sang their own songs. And they won like an award, but they never sang it. Exactly. And I think they had some like interviews after it and they weren't, they weren't really very, um, they weren't really like showing any remorse. They were like, no. yeah, I mean, we can't sing, but we wanted to be superstar. So can yeah. you blame us? That's pretty much how it went with. And uh, so this is not one of those guys. One of the actual singers, the reason they got really popular, one of the duo, uh, John, John Davis. Uh, he was only 66. Um, so is the, like the actual singers, are they a duo as well? Yeah, but the thing is, like, they weren't, like, dancers. They no, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they were the recording vocalists. So, but again, 
Did they do like any other stuff that people might know, or are they just known for doing like the vocal recordings I'm, on I'm Millie sure, Vanilli? I'm pretty sure their most famous thing was being the actual voice of Mi- Millie Vanilli. Um, <laughs> Try saying that ten times really I, quickly. I'm, seriously, I'm, I'm struggling, <laughs> struggling to Millie Vanilli, Millie Vanilli. All right, <laughs> but yeah, so it, it's kind of sad because you know they they had a couple of really uh, good songs and like uh, you know like late '80s, early '90s where you know they were they were a good pop duo um, for the actual singers like you know. Not to be a jerk, but like, point is, yeah, it's rest in peace, man. Like, it's a shame. Uh, I hate that kind of feeling where it's like you were an artist, but the thing is, like, you were so like you just felt like I'm not gonna make it in this scene. I'm not gonna uh, be able was, to be a stage presence. He's only sixty six as well. Yeah, this one was a little bit more punchy for me because this was uh, I, I liked this guy when I was a kid. Uh, B J Thomas, Grammy winning singer. Blowjob Thomas. Anyway, he dies. He, he died. Uh, he was 78 years old. He, I feel like a, I really diminished the hit of that. You, uh, uh, he lived a pretty long life. He wrote such classics as Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. He also wrote the original, you know, uh, Hooked on a Feeling. That was him. He wrote that song. I thought that was like Blue something. Nope. That was a cover in the 70s. He did Hooked on a Feeling. Yes, the original. he did. What, yeah. When? 68. I oh, say. okay. Sure. It has a much more 60s sound to it. Like, it's a little more like, I don't know, it kind of sounds like a little bit more... That Late flop. 60s is kind of pretty much 70s in a lot of ways. Yeah, but I mean, like, the, the, the hooked on a feeling that everybody knows, like, the one from Guardians of the Galaxy, is, like, very... Hooked on a feeling. Yeah, bah, 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 bah. It's very funky, you know? This one is yeah. not funky. This one's very, like, flower child guitar music. Okay, I'll have to um, check that out. I mean, yeah, and the thing is, like, I was a beautiful singer. Uh, the first time I ever heard B.J. Thomas sing was Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. From Spider-Man 2, the scene oh, yeah. when, when he's like, I'm not going to be Spider-Man anymore. And then it's just a montage of him walking around genuinely enjoying his life. Well, it's a montage of him being a dick and, and seeing everyone. Crimes. Yeah, that's a, the, whole, the whole trilogy is a montage of him being an asshole, stalking women, and just ignoring crimes. Well, what do you, I mean, it's Tobey Maguire. What do you expect? He's a petty man. Anyway, let me, let me get to some... Not necessarily... There's not a lot of happy news I have today, but I do have... One thing which is a bit funnier, we're getting away from all the death stuff, so... Most recently, did you ever watch the show Friends? Of course I watched the show Friends. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I don't... I'm a millennial. I don't give into the hype I, completely, I was, I was but... I forced to watch it. Uh, yeah, like, you know... I mean, yeah, no, I, I feel... I, I think like, most people our age have at least seen it, right? Yeah, they made that big reunion special... Where all the actors came together and they, yeah, I they, about they that. sat on the couch and they're, they're, they had a few guest stars come in and talk about friends and talk about other stuff. And then uh, in China, in China alone, Lady Gaga, Justin Bieber, and BTS were all edited out <laughs> because of various sentiments that they shared. Basically, they all kind of show up to do like skits okay. that were like referencing parts of the show. Like Lady Gaga comes in as if she's Lisa Kudrow and sings "Smelly Cat," like you know, like like cutesy stuff. Like, ah, we're we're playing to the crowd here. Point is, they said a few things involving uh, the government. <laughs> Uh, the Chinese government? Uh, yeah. and like, In a Friends show? That's... It's, it's not like... They weren't like, and I'm going to condemn this. It's like they made references that the government did not like. Uh, so there were various things referencing the LGBTQ legacy of the show, which I think is kind of ironic, because if I remember that show, Ross was pretty much a homophobe, like the entire show, so I don't really know what they're talking I about. I think like the show wasn't really that forward-thinking, really. No, I mean, like, it was a 90s comedy it's show. pretty and, much as basic as, like... Yeah, but... It had no, like, progressive ideals to it, at least. Yeah, 
So that that was particularly Lady Gaga's bit. Apparently, Bieber was edited out because he's banned from entering China. Because, Why? Because of quote from Rolling Stone, bad behavior. <laughs> it does not specify. That could be a lot of stuff. Bad in China, behavior, though. including posting a photo on Instagram of his visit to the controversial Tokyo Yasukuni Shrine. BTS was not allowed to join uh, because of other things also complementary war efforts uh, that, again, were not favorable to the Chinese. Uh, Mostly about Koreans, because BTS is Korean. Oh, of course they are. Wait, they're like the the group, right? Yeah, they're like the yeah, they're, like they're probably stars, the right? yeah they're probably like the biggest the Korean biggest K-pop kind yeah. of I yeah I remember the name but I don't remember the songs because yeah. I just find all that stuff like it's not s- a, listening to Styrofoam like you're not you're not a pop guy or a K-pop guy I'm a pop guy but I'm like a good pop guy and K-pop is just so fluffy and so clean and just you remember like last episode we were talking about Toxic by Britney Spears right yeah that's a great pop song with a bit of edge to it that is. Uh, nothing I've seen from like any K-pop has any edge to it. Mm-hmm. Like J-pop sometimes does. Yeah, but like true. K-pop just seems so clean and just inoffensive and made by committee. I'm just like, Ugh. I mean, I I would agree with you on a couple of those points. That's that's fair enough. I got one more <laughs> that's less depressing than all the dead stuff. So this is about uh, America trying to get you know live shows back up and running. So here we go. Florida concert. In Miami, charges eighteen dollars for fans who can prove they've been vaccinated. You know what they charge people who are not vaccinated? What? One thousand U.S. dollars. <laughs> That's fair enough. Like anti-vaxxers just need to like get their head in reality. Read a science textbook. Read a science textbook. All right. So yeah, basically, uh, U.S. authorities were eager to get people vaccinated, and again, you've got. Lots of people who are this way or that way about it, but it's not just that. They've offered uh, things like free beer, uh, free, <laughs> free lottery tickets, and now you have various rock concert promoters who are literally saying, Yeah, these tickets usually cost like 200 to 800 dollars, we'll sell it to you for like 20 bucks if you are vaccinated. Because it's just that's the I think that's honestly the right way to do it for Americans, and not just Americans, but primarily yeah. Americans is that if you want them to do something, it's got to be related to a reward. So it's like, hey, you can go out and do all this fun stuff, but you got to be vaccinated. And you're still allowed to if you're not vaccinated, but you have to pay premium prices. Yeah, like, I, I think, know. no, I, I'm, I'm absolutely behind that Because it's, 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 not, it's not mandatory vaccines, but it's like, yeah. if you want to go and have fun again, go get vaccinated. Yeah, no, like, a surprisingly sensible decision from Florida. On, from Florida's yeah, part, well, I guarantee, based on what you've told me previously. I guarantee it wasn't the governor's decision. It was probably just various <laughs> music producers and stuff. I've got some short burst news for you if you want it. Sure. The saga of DMX continues. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. DMX's first posthumous album, Exodus, released on all major streaming services. Apparently it's positive, though some have expressed critical opinions of the work. I wish DMX was here to get this love because that Exodus album brought the streets back. Wow. Uh, wrote one individual. I'm giving DMX new Exodus album a solid 8 out of 10, said someone else. I must say it, DMX is that dude and a pure legend, but this hashtag Exodus album, nah. I see a lot of people saying it's fire. Where? (laughs) (laughs) Great. Oh, here's another one. What is Bono doing on the DMX album? Why is Bono? 
Is Bono actually on the album? Probably. Bono always Bono has a weird knack of showing up where he's not asked to show up. Oh no, he's got a lot of. Um, it's a forty-minute-long project, which featured. I guess it's got collaborations. Maybe to fill it out. I I'd, I'd believe that because that's what Justin Timberlake did for that Michael Jackson. I was album. thinking when Heath Ledger died and that movie. Um, the Magic Emporium thing. Oh, and they the, got like five yeah. different actors. Mr. To... Magorium? Mr. M- the, Wonder the, the, Emporium. The most confusing title of yeah. all time. It's a really bonkers movie. You should I watch it. Yeah, I think I'd like yeah, it. It's, it's crazy. Um, but it's featured uh, Switz Beats, uh, Jay-Z, of course, yeah. Nas, Lil Wayne, Bono, Alicia Keys, Snoop Dogg, and Usher. Wait, like actual Nas or Lil Nas? It says Nas. All right, cool. That's like OG Nas, like Nas X. Well, who's Lil Nas? Lil Nas is, you know, 666 Cowboy Satan guy. Oh, the one who did the, the shoes. Yeah. Hey, wait, so he took that guy's name and added Lil at the start. Yeah, dude, Nas X is like a super famous like, yeah, 90s like, well, gangster rapper. Well, you know, Empire State of Mind? Okay. I, my 90s knowledge of rap is, is Wu-Tang Clan and Public Enemy. This is a, a little, little bit, a tidbit of the crazy world of competitive music industry, Simon Cowell oh God. cancels X Factor Israel appearance <laughs> as violence continues. So, I'm sorry, the way I read that out makes it sound like he cancelled X Factor Israel. Mm. He did not. He cancelled his own appearance on the show. Okay. He's pulling out of being a judge. He said he could not participate for a number of reasons and was bitterly disappointed. Ah. You need to grow some balls. If you're like, if you're like big brand show thing is going to start off somewhere, you need to have the balls to get behind it and be there. That you heard it here first. You, you heard it here first. Simon Cowell doesn't like Israel. Um, at the time, he said he could barely wait to see what the Israelis have to offer. Ugh. I don't believe it. Sounds like he needs... All that man cares about is his own wallet. It's been the same since 1990 whenever Kelly Clarkson won the first freaking American Idol. That man is only interested in his own pockets. Man, he's... Well, he's he's British. (laughs) (laughs) Does that mean are all British people greedy? Mate, it's a... Have you seen the state of the the country right now? It's a... It's a doggy dog world. You gotta stab each other to get get enough money for a a wrap and a Coca-Cola. Lord. Lord have mercy. (laughs) It's time to move on to the feature. The feature of the show, our album is coming out. It is finally ready, and I couldn't really think of a better way to commemorate that with kind of like sharing a bit of our experiences on the podcast. So that's what our feature is about today. We're going to talk about how do you make an album. So I think the first question is, why did you start getting into music? Like, what, what what made you want to pick up a guitar or a bass or whatever your first instrument was? I think for me, it was listening to a lot of punk rock. And the first kind of, like, exposure I had to, like, proper, like, progressive thought being verbalized. Because it's everywhere now. If you look on Twitter or like anything, yeah. like, social media, like, progressive thought is everywhere and power to it. First exposure I had to it was um, listening to Nirvana and um, kind of, like, reading a bit about the musicians behind this because I, I loved... Uh, it was the compilation album where You Know You're Right is the first track. Yeah. Solid track. I can get behind these ideas. It helps me feel separate from this place that I do not like and all this kind of stuff. At th- that point in my life, I didn't really like put a lot of time into anything of particular worth. Yeah. I was good at school, but I was um, my attention span was not there. So I was like 
I really am into this. This kind of speaks to me in a lot of ways. I would like to do something like this. I'm not picking this up to stare at tabs for hours and hours. I'm picking this up so I can express myself in the same way these musicians did that I've been kind of influenced by. Personally, I would say I had a very different experience. Uh, I grew up in a very, uh, very Christian family and a very musical family. Like my mother had been classically trained to like to be a director, uh, and my father was your very seventies long hair goatee acoustic guitar singing kind of guy. And eventually, my like my my immediate family, we broke off from you know religious influence. It just you know things didn't work out that way, but. The music passion was always still there. And the thing is, like, it's just always been there for me. It's never not been there. I didn't discover music. I was, like, born into it. So there came a time where it was like, okay, Ethan, what instrument do you want to learn? That's you know, It's like choosing a Pokemon. It's like, all right, what instrument do you want to learn? You, gotta, <laughs> yeah. you have to learn one, so which okay. one do you want? That's cool. And when I was, like, eight, I said, I want to learn the violin. And my mom said, that's really hard. Don't do that. <laughs> she said, if you want to learn the violin, you need to take piano first so you can learn music theory. So when I was nine, I started taking piano lessons for three years. So I was 11. I don't know why. Like, I, I, I still love playing the piano, but like it just stopped being interesting. So I was like, I want to do something that's more fun and exciting and energetic. Drums just came to me. I was like, yeah, like I want to be a drummer. And my mom was like, yeah, I expected that. I don't know, my mom knows me better than I know myself sometimes, but like the point is she was like, yeah, you've always been a drummer. Like I could just tell from like when you were a boy. So I started taking private lessons at this uh, place called Schroeder's, uh, named after the uh, uh, the owner, not the, you know, Schrodinger's box. Point is, uh, Sh uh, Larry Schroeder owned a store, uh, like with a music teaching uh, shop, and uh, his good friend and drum uh, teacher, uh, Sean Taunton, uh, proceeded to teach me and he taught me everything from like just normal like drum theory stuff like rudiments and like eventually we broke out and he's like let's do something more fun mm. so I started learning covers for me I kind of like did the reverse of what you did I did take lessons for about a year or so amazing guy called Gordon Clayton who's like su he was a super cool guy he was mainly a bassist as well which probably explains why I leaned more towards kind of like having good rhythm and good melody as opposed to athletics all around yeah. the fretboard. But so, so he started off like teaching me a few songs that he thought I'd be into. And then actually like, so I went the reverse way. We started off doing covers and I was kind of like, I don't have the attention span for this and I'm only really interested in doing my own stuff. Like I want to learn how to do that. So he actually was like, okay, let's discard that for now and let's do theory. He's going to teach me what chords, guitar chords, voicings belong in a major scale or a minor scale or any tonal key. And then I'd have like a homework assignment, write a song with those chords I taught you, which was a lot more interesting for me. It was less about concentrating on a specific thing that I'd needed to follow. And it was more of like, here are some parts, you need to piece it together and turn it into something. In your experience from seeing other people play your instrument, do you think your path was harder or easier? I don't think there really is a better way, you know? Whatever works for you as a person. If you got the patience to sit down and practice a song endlessly and kind of learn it like that, that's great. I mean, to this day, especially recently, I found like the skills I've got on the guitar limited me a bit. Like there's certain things that I'd like to do that I can't do. Hmm. So like uh, when I listen to stuff like uh, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine, he does all these kind of like crazy sound kind of scary yeah. stuff. 
uh, or when I listen to like uh, Polyphia and the kind of crazy oh, yeah. like pull on and legato techniques they yeah. do, I I want to try and sit down and learn that kind of stuff. If I can piggyback on that, I, I feel like part of the thing that made me develop as a drummer was mostly my, my tutor was saying like, you we can pick a new song, but if you don't have like your heart set on some song you've always wanted to cover, he's like, I will pick a song for you that will make you a better drummer. Because sure. it's going to be some technique you have not done yet, or that you have not practiced yet. Uh, if this is going to be a like a super long answer, you don't have to answer it. But I do want to know, because um, we both kind of have like our preferred genre of choice. What age or what influence was it that made you say like, yes, I'm a musician, but I am a punk rock guitarist kind of thing, you know? So I started out about like fourteen, fifteen, so something like that. This is like right about college time right before secondary school okay all right so you were you were like 17 towards the middle of secondary school i was about like secondary school like 13 14 oh, okay so yeah, maybe middle. middle school for you yeah 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 middle school for sorry you. british americanism <laughs> yeah um it was about then like i'd listen like i say nirvana was the big thing for me the big like light bulb moment right and punk just was the main force that i was interested in uh, the ideals of actual musicianship as long as you can play something you can try and make your own song. You don't need to spend hours trying to be a virtuoso. Right. If you know free chords, write a song with it. It wasn't until like university, I think, I want to develop beyond this. I want to start learning more on techniques, escape from being a punk rock guy. But that is my, that's my foundation for sure. I mean, similarly, like my biggest foundations have always been progressive rock and jazz. But it's like playing playing together in our band it did challenge me to like, okay, I need to listen and like actually try to do some more punk stuff. And it's not because it's like, oh, I can't play drums that are good enough for what we're doing, but it's like, you know, I need to find, again, kind of like that missing puzzle piece. Like I gotta, I gotta put this in there so like it sounds good altogether, it sounds cohesive. Yeah, are there, are there things on the drums that you, to this day, can't execute as well as others might and that you want to? Yeah, I mean, the thing is with drums is that it's like, it's one of those things where it's like learning drumming is like, you just have to always practice the mechanics and then eventually it just becomes muscle memory. Like you listen to a band like Dragon Force, it is not hard to play. You just need to practice until you're able to play that fast. Sure. But you listen to, you already brought them up, you listen to like a math rock band like Polyphia where they're like throwing in all sorts of madness in there. Where it's like, that is real technical stuff that's hard to do. So if I had to say there's like one thing that's, that like I wish I could play that it's always been a bit of a challenge is it's probably stuff that's, that's like math rock. Real fast jazz drumming mixed with like metal drumming and then you add like some like cocaine in there. Like, <laughs> because it's just so insane. It's just like the stuff they're pulling off and like the speed and technicality of it is so amazing. There's a big difference between like Metallica metal and like Polyphia. So you, without an instrument, great. Instruments only so much use on their own. There's something special about working with a band and something that I've always had issues with been a bit of a sociopath. Let, let's talk a bit about that. Like, how do you make a band? Oh. What were some of the problems with it? Okay. There's no way to say this without just coming off as a huge douchebag. <laughs> I was never in a functional band until I was a very young adult because I had a stick up my ass about people playing at my level and no one was talented enough. And that sounds so douchey. Congratulations. Again, you keep up with your track record of being the douchebag member of the band. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, there's so many of us. Um, <laughs> yeah, so just a little bit more than me is right. all you ever need to be. So that's the thing is that it's like this was at an age where I wasn't like you can play a four beat, you can play a funk beat, and it can be super super sexy. Like you you look at people like on guitar, you look at like the guitar gods like Steve Vai and like Satriani and Petrucci. And the thing is, those guys cannot be beaten. But that's a technical standpoint. You listen to a person play guitar like Jimi Hendrix, and you put him right up there with them. Yeah, he's that, still... The, that music is still so influential, even if it's simple yeah, in some I aspects. mean, he still seems one of the best because of feel. Mm, exa- yeah, And yeah. that's kind of why I... Like, he became my big idol after Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Because of... Mainly because of combining rhythm and lead. I, I found, like, playing lead on the lead I was capable of doing kind of boring. But also I found chords a bit boring, if you're just strumming chords. Right. So that's kind of one of the issues I had working in bands is I wanted to do both rhythm and lead like Hendrix did, like John Frusciante from yeah. Chili Peppers for yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. And my experience when I was working in bands previously was mostly an issue of these guys aren't kind of against the grain enough. I feel like I was kind of in a similar boat. Where again, again, we're talking for me like you know late two thousands when I was first trying this stuff. And it was always like, hey, can you play Linkin Park? Hey, can you play Avenged Sevenfold? Can you play? It's like, well, yes, I can, <laughs> but I'm going to be bored. And I think that's what it was. I don't mean to say it's like, oh, these people weren't talented enough to play with me. It's just that there wasn't anything challenging about it. And the whole basis of me learning drums was play something new that will challenge you. So I didn't have really a mind for creating stuff at the time. But it, the point was, like, I, I wanted to play at least something that was going to be challenging. You wanted to play Dream Theater 24-7. I mean, I did. <laughs> that's what you did. You told I did. Me. I was a fanboy. I, I learned almost their entire anthology from 1992 to 2010, like every single song. And to this day, like when I think about it, it's like I know so much of that music by muscle memory. And I think, that, like, yeah, of course I can play this stuff. It's not a big deal. Because, you know, there's so many drummers that are far more technically proficient than I am, just factually. But you talk to some, you know, guy on the streets, like, oh my God, you can play music by Dream Theater? It's like, yes, because I, I practice. And again, it goes back to what I was saying about drumming. It's like, you practice the stuff enough and enough, you'll be able to do it. And I, I guess that kind of sounds stupid. I guess that's true of literally any instrument, but it's like, I don't know. I think one of the issues is finding people who are kind of like-minded in what they want to spend their time on. Because ultimately, yeah. that's it. As with any hobby it's or any job, it's, it's, it's time-consuming. It's, right. But that brings us on to a band that works, that got together. Which, for me, is mostly just our band, really. Yeah. What kind of made that work for you? Because originally, it was kind of just stress relief, right? And it was like, let's cover songs. But then we started doing originals. So what changed that for you? Well, it was a very interesting time. Because we had just gotten out of the initial quarantine. It was just a matter of, like... I hadn't really been serious about drums in, like, a couple of years at that point. And it really, like... It was kind of upsetting... I think what it was is when we finally found the rehearsal space and it was like, let's just like, you know, it had been so long since I had played with another musician. I mean, I should mention, I was never part of a successful band, but like I was always a part of band in school. Sure, yeah. I was very used to the idea of playing with a band, even if it was like a jazz trio, having someone lead, having someone do rhythm and having me on drums. And it's like, I missed that vibe, that connection of like, I'm just playing with another musician and we're just seeing what comes about. It's a very jazz, like idealistic kind of way to play. It's like, let's it's, just play uh, and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, you know what I learned? Uh, one of the things I learned at composition school, university, right. as we call it, 
is um, improvisation is automatic composition. It's composing at the time in the moment. Yeah, yeah. There, there is some like a jazz band is a is a great is an extreme example of what all bands kind of are right. to need to work together. I think. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because you need that spark of almost the spark of insanity. But I mean, you know what I mean. Like that, that just that little bit of like improv of let's just see where this goes mm-hmm. to be able to like make a band. Because you know when we first started playing, I had no idea we were going to start playing our own unique into like you know originals but you know you're like hey i've written some stuff from my past let's let's see if anything happens with it and then eventually that developed into like i have an idea for this and i'd say can we try this type of technique rhythmically and you're like let's see what we can do next week happens we're like pumping out a song and then sometimes you just be like hey i have an idea and then we would just play a song out of nowhere like satisfied was like born within 50 minutes and then when we just played it and I was like, well, that, that just works. That's a good song. I like that. Most art, and especially music, I think, is at its best when it's kind of primal, unspoken, people working together. Mm. That's how music started. It was people drumming in the jungle. Well, it was like people banging on skulls and rocks and stuff. Yeah, like that's how it started. You do need that kind of unspoken communication. So... That's kind of how to make a band in as vague a sense as it's possible yeah. to say. Meet because someone who wants to spend time playing music, then roll the dice and maybe it'll work. <laughs> maybe it'll work. Yeah. That's kind of how it works. But when you get from that, if you're going to make an album, you need to write some songs. Whew. Which for you is quite a recent thing. Yeah. For me, like I said, is something that I've done as soon as I picked up an instrument. What's your experience with that before? Why didn't you do it before? I tried so hard to write music. And so much of it was confidence. I, but you I, have the confidence to big yourself in a lot of ways, as like a drummer, as a singer. Yeah. Like generally speaking, you are like a. I mean, as a performer, <laughs> I agree. Like I'll say, I am a very confident performer, but it's a as a writer, as a writer, I'm not confident. There's something different about it about there, showing there someone this is something I made. Because it's 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 a lot more vulnerable. If you tell me to go up, grab a microphone, and sing a song that everyone loves, like a song by Queen. That is not a problem for me. It's like, yeah, I like the song. You like the song. I'm going to sing it and you're going to enjoy it. When it comes to like, I'm going to share something with you that I spent personal time and like emotions putting onto a piece of paper. And then, you know, like there's so many different things, but most of it's self-doubt. Like I, I couldn't really care less if like only two people listen to it and be like, yeah, that's fine. But like, it's my own personal stuff where it's like, I don't think this is good enough. I tried to write the same two or three songs for like years. I know what I want. But I'm frustrated because it's not coming out how I like feel it and think it. Mm. And it's like, I'm still at that point. Because you said it yourself. You've been writing music since you were young. I've only seriously started to try write music in the last couple of years. Now, it's like whenever you're just like, do something, sing something. Even if it's not great, it's like, I just do it. And I'm like, maybe I could do something with that later. Maybe we could turn that something different, you know? So I think it's just a matter of like... If you have an idea, write it down. Try and, you know, beatbox a rhythm, hum a melody. Just give yeah, it a try. Sure. There's no shame in trying to make something, for real. A lot of these, like, underground punk bands I really liked from the 80s, like Minutemen, they always, like, sometimes they'd get booed because their stuff was kind of quite progressive in certain ways. Right. Especially for that crowd. It was used to just, like, power chord, distort punk rock. Right. And they were always, like, get up on the stage, take my guitar, take my microphone, Show us what you can do. Yeah, play something better. You shouldn't accept criticism from a person who's not going to try and do something 
equal to you or better. Just distance yourself from it and kind of like focus on the productivity aspect of it. Mm. I think for me, like, because I had a big hiccup with writing music. I've been doing it since I was a kid. So I did music at university, which is composition. So focused on writing film scores and orchestra scores and that kind of stuff. And it kind of killed the fun because everything was graded and judged. Yeah. I barely touched the guitar for like two years after university. It was no longer just about like expressing. It was like now there was baggage to it. There was mm. like expectations and I couldn't separate that. This is about being successful. Well, it was about other people's thoughts because that's what it's in university. It's about your lecturer's thoughts. Right. But I think there's always going to be some time and between doing away with any kind of like ego issues you might have and any confidence issues you might have. And the way to kind of cut those out is to do it 100% only for yourself. And it actually becomes difficult to work with other people because it's like, this is something I made and I don't want to compromise on this. Yeah. Overall, it's kind of like you've got to let go of certain inhibitions that you have if you're going to make something. Yeah. I think that's true of like any creative anything. Yeah. If you're going to be a writer, if you're going to be a painter, if you're going to be a musician, like... You have to do it for you. Like you, you, I don't want to repeat it. Like you said it perfectly. It's like if you do it for yourself, then you're setting yourself up in a better way than you would be if you were doing it for other people's acknowledgement. Because the only result is success. Yeah. There are musicians who will listen to him and be like, this is almost objectively bad, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But you get there. Like, you get there. Like, the first couple of songs I ever wrote weren't masterpieces. They weren't good at all. Some people might say this album we're going to release isn't good at all. <laughs> but you get you get better and better the more practice you give. So you just got to do it. Yeah. I was saying this to my friend Dave. who was He was working on some, like, guitar pieces that he had kind of, like, recording. And uh, he wasn't getting stuff finished and getting stuff quite how he wanted it in his head. And I told him, quantity is better than quality. It is when the quantity is zero. Mm. Yeah. And that's that's a good message for anyone. Yeah. If you get your quantity up to a reasonable degree, then you can worry about harnessing the quality better. Sure. I, if there's two if there's two things I heard, uh, and one of them's one of them's funny, but it 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 makes sense. Uh, literally, this is from each of one of the hosts of Game Grumps. The first one said, "You just gotta try." I didn't come out the pussy drawing Mozart. <laughs> which obviously you know that's just that's a stab for laughs but the point is he's right it's like you, no, yeah, you yeah. can't call yourself a shitty artist if you haven't tried to draw things before it's like that's not fair yeah and then the other one said it's like this is a bit more of if you are already trying if you are trying and you're kind of in that limbo area of like I am writing but I don't feel confident about it and I don't feel like I'm a musician you're a musician you are a writer if you are playing your instrument and you are writing music you are an artist do not say I'm not an artist yet because blah 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 you're an artist like give yourself that amount of credit it's, it's the least you can do for yourself and your confidence and that'll help you put stuff on a paper and play and make that stuff when it's done and produced and just made yourself it's something you can be proud of but yeah we're moving forward my god i don't know if anything will prepare you for your first recording process because uh, so many people i'd booked two weeks off and so many people were being like oh did you have fun it's like no no it's not fun at all it's so stressful yeah. it's so tiring and exhausting your arms wouldn't move by the end of it my yeah. i had lost all dexterity in my fingers yeah. And my voice was shot. Yeah. Like, I forgot how much my arms hurt at the end of that. Like, 
I it almost made me want to play simpler drum beats in our future music. It's like I don't want to have to do this again. <laughs> it was so. I mean, uh, we should like say up top that we did something that not everyone does. I'd say a lot of people don't do it like this. We did the entire album, thirteen songs of like drumming, bass, guitar, vocals. All of it was finished within a week. It was not seven days. I it, was it was within a week. Two weeks. Nope. Oh no, it wasn't right because we did like we did all of it in one week because that's all I could do to get off work. It was intensive as hell. It was it was pretty hardcore. Yeah. Uh, one thing I would say, if you are in a band or if you are preparing yourself to record an album with other people, try try to spread things out a bit. And you know, God, be be patient, be patient and be kind, because we wanted to kill each other by the end of that week. Let's talk a bit about methodology. So, like, my dream recording situation would be, like, 100% analog, recording to vinyl, recording on tape, a recording live band, which is kind of like what my heroes did. It's what they did back in the 60s and 70s. And there's something a bit more magical about musicians working off each other. And um, you can find some great studies on this if you if you look up using a click track mm. and it'll show you like tempo fluctuations between like amazing drummers like John Bonham and drummers who use a click track. And this is like something that you always seem to take offense of when I was telling you it is like that your tempo keeping is not going to be perfect. There are minor fluctuations that are going to happen. They're just going to happen because you're a human being, you're not a machine. Right. Some people who are like music was better back in the old days. That's the thing they're talking about. They don't know it, but that's what they're talking about. It's not that like the creativity is gone because it hasn't. There's so much stuff you can do with modern technology. Uh, there's so many talented musicians out there. Yeah. The thing that's changed massively is the approach and it's less natural. Yeah, that's fair. As we found out when we tried to do it like this, it's a lot more difficult as well to record like this. Yeah. Uh, so have you, have you had any experiences like recording with click tracks? I mean, again, going back to my teenage years, when I was playing with a, with a big band and like it was coming to rehearsals and stuff, like when it was like the jazz trio, you it was all improv. There was no click or anything like that. But when it got to like orchestral stuff and anything other than like other than just straight jazz trio playing, it was like you were playing to a metronome until we were at like dress rehearsals and stuff. You better follow that metronome or you will be punished. Uh, especially the percussion section. They were like... It made me think of whiplash. <laughs> like, I was never physically abused. I was verbally abused. You were never physically abused by J.K. Simmons. No, that'd be fine. I, I was never... That would be fine. Yeah, I love J.K. Simmons. I love him too, yeah. but... Uh, I don't ever want to be physically abused by my, the man. My point is, I was verbally abused by my uh, director growing up, just because it's just... It's a cutthroat type of thing. I mean, like... Uh, Usually, you know, all the percussionists in high school and college are potheads, so they don't really care. But it's like, you are getting thrashed at if you screw up. Because if you screw up, the whole band screws up. Because it's not like a jazz trio where you can listen to the bass guitar. It's like, when you're playing, like, big band orchestral stuff, they're listening to the drums first. It's high school band. Is it more like marching band kind of style stuff compared that, to what I'm thinking of, maybe? Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. So, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Like marching band with like angry J.K. Simmons walking behind you. Yeah. Being like not quite my tempo. Yeah, and then do a lap <laughs> with, with your drums strapped to your back. Yeah. And no, fair enough. Anyway, point is, yes, there is a difference. I'd say 
with playing with with or without a metronome but more importantly it's the recording which i think i think the fear or maybe i don't want to put words in your mouth it's like you don't want it to sound sterile or you don't want it to sound like fabricated you want a bit of something kind of natural to it what we came to kind of notice from our experience and the main issue when you're doing it this way is what most bands do now is that if they make a mistake they can cut and paste so if you do the verse one perfectly and you do the verse second verse and you make a mistake, it's okay. You can cut and paste something from verse one into verse two. No one's gonna ever notice a difference. No one will notice a difference. If you're playing without a click track, you cannot cut something from verse one and put it in verse two because the timing is gonna be different. No matter how good your drummer is, no matter how good his tempo keeping is, he's gonna be a few milliseconds off, which after a minute of beats, is going to turn into half a second or something like that, mm, yeah. which makes it incredibly off and you cannot do it as a strategy anymore. One thing that will surprise you with recording is there's certain songs you practice and they work perfectly every time. But the irony is that the recording process flips it all on its head. Like certain songs that you felt like you had in the bag kind of easily suddenly become miserable like we have one song on our album called uh, kings of industry it's a song one of the first ones we did together yeah i think the first maybe it was the first or second song we ever played together and every time we played it it was always simple satisfying and clean by the end of it we're like yeah that's a good one that's a, that was a lot of fun to play and when we were recording it was like oh christ this is a pain in the ass yeah, like nothing was working it was because there'll be tempo changes where um, where Ethan would stop playing the drums for a small section, mostly. Mm. And I'd be doing a little guitar interlude. And we originally recorded drums and bass together with no click track. And then I would have to overdub a guitar bit on top of only the bass. Right. And because the bass wasn't playing on a click track or even a drummer, drummer's drumming, it was going on feeling. So I had to make like the track on the computer really wide so I could see the sound waves when they were going up, which meant I was playing a note, and I could track them and be like, okay, I'm about to do a note. It was that level of, because what we do in, in practice, which is so natural and kind of going down tempo, yeah. becomes a massive issue when you're recording about a click track and recording over the top of yourself in the past. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it was a very good experience, even if a lot of it was hard and like frustrating. And you know, if you want to record 13 songs, don't do it in a week. <laughs> Just don't. Do it in more than one week, and it will make your heart a lot less stressed. Especially if you have some songs of an aggressive edge, as we do. <laughs> Partly because of the drums, but primarily to save your voice. Yeah. Because, my God. Oh, yeah. Well, I was getting increasingly like yeah. angry and like, yeah, yeah. You, you. I mean, there was a lot of tension no matter who you were. If you were in the room with the recording person, if you were with Louis, our guy, who was like sitting there on the computer, he's doing the recordings and you're watching the person through the window do their part um, for the singing, it's like, you know, you know when there's like a part where you're like, mm, like that needs to be, for lack of a better, that just needs to be better or that needs to be done a different way or it needs to be done again. And the thing is, Rob said this before, he's like, if you're in that room and you mess up, like, you know, you're the first one who knows. You're like, damn it, I messed that up. So it's like, Nobody wants to be the person to say, "Yeah, let's do another take." Yeah, because you already know. As soon as you've done it, you're like, 
okay, I need to do that bit again. And everyone's and frustrated. Then, as soon as like someone like has the guts to try and be like, maybe you never take you. Like, I know, I know. Yeah. I need Shut to up. Just go back and do it again. <laughs> it's like it, when you get to those moments where you and I would both like be quiet because we're both like, let's not set each other off. And you'd be like, Louis, the one who's like, another one. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> yes. I remember like having quite a bit of like the drum solos. Like the first couple of days were particularly trying on you because you had to record most of like the drum parts. Yeah. Within it, three days. Yeah. Which is trying on the arms. You don't have to be a drummer to understand that. Right. And the thing is that part of it is that playing a song, you have the entire song to think about like, how am I going to build the solo? And you get the whole vibe for the song. So when it's, let's go back just 30 seconds. Yeah. Put yourself in the same headspace you would Solid. be as if you had played the entire song and now do the solo. It's like, I'm just not there emotionally. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a massively fair point. Um, and like, I mean, because the thing is like, again, we come to that part where it's like, I know. <laughs> but it's like, I know, I, I don't yeah. need you to tell me. Yeah, I, I already know. Like, I'm aware that I'm not doing what I want to do. And when we were doing, uh, <laughs> when we were doing Dagger Eyes, I was so pissed off because there's this, there's this fill I do over and over again. And I've been doing it constantly. I absolutely love playing it. And we did it in practice so easily. It was never a problem for me. But it never was like, all right, we're going to jump just before that section get ready for it i could never nail it it took me like 20 tries i swear and it was just so frustrating and it's like this is not a particularly difficult thing to do it, like and none of my drum solos are like you know you know portnoy and are like i'm not like trying to you know play like rush drum solos here it's just the thing is when you start over and start that again you're no longer in a vibe of playing what you were playing it's like i'm now already frustrated for sure. And I think, I'm starting at an awkward point in the song. Yeah, I think the best capture of that is during... It's either the final chorus of Into the Ether or 5674, where I'm doing the vocals. <laughs> and there's a lot of screaming, especially... Because, again, you're building up a whole song. And this is, again, why I wanted to record it more natural-wise, because you have that natural build. Right. It doesn't sound so sterile. Yeah. The issue is, when you have a bit that's a little bit off, this is recorded, it's for it's permanent, so you, you do want to go back to revisit it, but you haven't had the build-up. So there's like a section at the end of one of our like our like harder rocking kind of songs, where I do quite a bit of a screaming outro, Yeah. but there's like a section at the end, and I think I did like three or four takes, right? You could see the sound waves getting longer each time. Mm. And it wasn't because I was trying particularly harder, because you're trying hard as soon as you get in there. Yeah. It's because you're getting angrier and angrier, and that emotion is fueling you, and you're pushing out, because that's a real scream of anger at that point. It's not just... <laughs> it it kind of helps you recapture that emotion in some ways yeah. that you would get from an actual performance. And yeah, I think I think it's worth noting, is it's like it's not like... Well, maybe we do, but it's not like Rob and I are prone to getting super frustrated if we do something incorrectly. But when you're recording and you know that you only have a certain amount of time to record, and more importantly, you only have a certain length of stamina to keep re-recording. Yes. I physically cannot do this more. It's going to keep going down yeah. in quality. I'll, on that note... Uh, I think I was doing Wine and Cocaine. I was doing the vocals for it. The song. Not the... Uh, yeah. <laughs> you didn't need to elaborate. I was trying for ages to get it right, and I knew it wasn't right. I finally got it right. And uh, Louis chimed in, like, over the headset, just to say, Hey, Rob, uh, we finished that take. Uh, I just want you to know Ethan just uh, leaned into me and said that was perfect. 
I think he knew that that the edge was starting to form and <laughs> yeah like if, if there was something other than that like and I, I definitely remember that moment where I was like tell him that was a really good one <laughs> because it's like if not some there's gonna be a chair thrown <laughs> through the glass at us like we get on pretty well as a band chemistry is pretty good it's pretty positive but if you record together you will have many times want to hit each other in the head of a chair yeah and like you know it's it's deserved sometimes it's like again there's that pushing factor but it's like you know it's it's just part of the experience especially when you're recording in such a tight window you know if you're a prof- if you're a professional band you like you belong to a studio then it's like it's it's not that it's not stressful but it's just it's a bit more scheduled we had a very tight window for this first uh first album and never again. Never again. <laughs> never again. Never again. If there's a song where we can do a click track, I'm open to trying a click track. And, <laughs> and, you know, we don't have to record in one week. We can, like, record a few songs, you know, every couple of weeks and oh, then sure. put the album together. It'd be much more relaxed. Absolutely. But that's our experience with recording. Nightmare that it was, but hell of a rewarding situation. Now we talk to producing, and there's a lot to talk about here because for those people who aren't, like, only passively interested in like the making of like recording process and mixing and mastering is essentially the recordings have been captured it's basically how you make your sound go from like raw sounds being captured into an actual song into an album right like if you if you hear literally anything on an album that is not normally physically you know capable like echo sounds or like distortion sounds on someone singing that is what we mean, mixing and mastering. Yeah, and it's also, but it's also things like bumping up the volume on certain parts. It's also about, uh, very importantly, making something sound like it was actually sung in a real room. And not because yeah. when you record vocals, they sound weird as hell because it yeah. sounds like someone's singing right in your ear. What was your experience for this? Like, how, what's your takeaway from like the overall mixing? process it was a lot less stressful than recording that's because for it's damn sure not our work it's right we need to come with the ideas to tell them what they need to do yeah and part of it is if you are using a sound engineer to do this it is important that you find a sound engineer that is versatile and also chill like i, I like definitely like open to can we try this? Maybe that didn't work. Can we try that? I want it to sound more like the kind of effects from this song or that song and go from there because part of it was our, our guy Louie was just such a good guy to work with mm. that yeah, the, sure. the whole post, like when you're publishing and post-production stuff, when I think about all of the mixing and mastering part, it was always, I was always excited. I was never like, this isn't going to turn out right because like no matter what, we're going to keep working on it until Louis finds something that we can both agree on. Yeah, I think it's kind of varied because like for some songs, again, like we said, it was like the recording process, it didn't turn out the exact way you kind of wanted it to. Hmm. And then you're in some ways you're trying to do like damage repair. Yeah, like salvaging. Yeah, of certain little bits. Like how can I get around this? That's true. I think the trickiest thing of this whole stage, like the thing to take away to kind of communicate is communication. Mm-hmm. But it's absolutely necessary to look at other songs of a recording artists and send little screenshots, little examples, because the sound you've got in your head, the sound that comes to you when you're practicing together in a room is not the same as what will come to a professional sound engineer. He's not you. Yeah. He's gonna, he's gonna have an idea that will be good 
and it'll work great, but it may not be what you're looking for specifically. Mm. And on top of that, most I'd say the majority of people who produce music don't go to university for this stuff. You yeah, know. he did. Yeah, he did. Um, and I'm saying like musicians too. Like yeah. not not everyone's like you know in your shoes where it's like you have been you've gone through so many different classes and stuff where it's like you know when it's like hey can you turn this up do this do that. It's like, you know, you might be able to know, like, oh, I know what reverb means. I know what this means. I know what distortion means. But, you know, you, you hear, like, Oh, the hey, terminology. Yeah, stuff, like, right? you start talking about terminology. Like, hey, can you, you know, crank up the, what was the S1 we always talked about? I don't know. Point is, I don't know any of this stuff. Uh, there, there was one that's like, oh, sad, not, not satisfaction. Uh, uh, sur- saturation. Saturation. It's a like, crank up the saturation on this part for the guitar and do this and do that. It's like, I don't know what the hell that means. <laughs> so it's like for a lot of people, you really do need to find a sound engineer who's like, yeah, show me the kind of sound you're looking for with some reference music and we'll, we'll accomplish that. Moving on. Let's talk a little bit about getting it out there. How do you share, share it with people? How do you show it to people? Uh, I, I'd like to say first kind of uh, kind of an important thing about this was for us was choosing our singles and like our initial idea going forward with the singles was let's show them a very different side of our band in each song right. let's show them our angriest let's show them our like softest and I think one of the issues with that was that we were getting the songs sent to us continually so we'd already released the singles before we got some that we were like this should have been a single. Yeah. You want to be a versatile band, but at the same time, you do need to let people know kind of where you're at. And that's kind of a tricky thing to kind of work out, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And when you're listening to an entire album from start to finish, which I know not everyone does, but if you're just digesting a full album, it's important where you put the highs and lows and middles of like the energy. It can, to- yeah. it can totally change the way you interpret that album. I mean, music's all about creating and relieving tension. Yeah. You've got to kind of figure out a medium. Like, it's good to experiment with different songs and different styles, but you do want to kind of figure out a medium. Otherwise, you just sound like a band that's covering songs by a bunch of different bands. Yeah. And that's the thing you want to avoid. You want to avoid being a band that's every song is the same. Right. You need to figure out some semblance of identity and kind of stick to it. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a difference of if you make everything sound the same, then no one's going to remember the album. They'll remember the song they liked the best off the album, but they won't remember the album because there was no variance. But, you know, personally speaking, and you said it best, is like you have to be careful how far you push it before you become dogs of no genre. Where it's just like, yeah, this isn't a band. This is like two guys who are just playing a different, like literally it's like, here's a rock song. Here's a metal song. Here's a punk song. Here's a funk song. It's like, that's, well, okay. Maybe that doesn't yeah. work so well for an and, album. And then there are like certain points in our album where we really toe the line on that pretty close. It's true. I think the saving grace is our instrumental kind of interplay. Yeah, those um, stay pretty true to themselves. Do you have anything to add in terms of like getting the album out there? Because as you know, I'm a sociopath, so yeah. I don't know how to, pr- not to, to... Not Here's the thing. Not to sound like a jaded person completely, but it's like... You have to prepare and plan what you can, are willing to, and how you will spend your money. That's a great point. And and that's the thing is that it's like that first strike is super important. You know, like making 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 it so that people can actually reach your music because it is it's important for you to share with anyone you can. But 
don't be afraid to spend some money on advertising. You're not going to have 100 million clicks in one day. But the thing is, the more the platforms show you off, the more likely it is that somebody will just randomly click you. And the more people that are able to see you and hear you, the more people will have a chance. And that's the important thing. They'll have a chance to say, wow, I never would have found this on my own. Uh, sure. Yeah. And now I like it. Yeah. Music's best when it's shared with people. That's the feature. That's the feature. It's time to move on to our most famous segment. <laughs> Ethan's been listening to what Rob listens to, and Rob's been listening to what Ethan listens to. Right. So, Ethan, tell us about what you've been listening to. Well... <laughs> It was a fascinating one, this one. Yeah, so I came across this album uh, because one of their songs is on Breaking Bad. This is kind of what I want hip-hop to be. So, first of all, sounds bizarre. (laughs) This is Honey Claws, their debut album by the same name, Honey Claws. The first song is called Shout Out. And here's the thing, what I want to say before, if I'm just like taking apart each song, I want to say the first third of this album really cool i really liked the first third of this album the first five songs i was just like every single time there's something a bit different Mm. and it's exploring something and building on something and i was loving it shout out was it it, the type of trancyness that it was took me to late 2000s it was very unique but it's like just the type of trancyness was like this reminds me of like the kind of music i heard in 2009 following it up with e-sticker boom you're popping into the real, like, actual hip-hop factor of this. Because the, the first song is kind of just like a like an atmosphere setter. E-Sticker is where, like, the actual hip-hop comes in. The rap's really coming in heavy. There were a couple of different things that stuck out to me, such as lines like, Bullets of Lust Like the Movies, Weapon of Choice, My Voice. Uh, things that I was just like, I, I was really digging how the guy writes his rhymes. Yeah. Uh, and also, like, there's, there's a light motif about... A leitmotif is actually a, a real thing. And this is not a musical leitmotif. This is a lyrical leitmotif about animals where he's either using allegorical lyrics for animals or just like literal, literally like making sounds and saying the names of animals at points to kind of drive, drive home some sort of animalistic vibe that he's setting with the whole album. So you get to the song Zookeeper, fittingly enough, and uh, the bass line on Zookeeper is fucking amazing i love it yeah that boom 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 it's solid it's really good so again we're still in the first third of this album so giant town happens and it's and i'm not I'm, i don't mean this in a detrimental way because i love this album it it feels like the missing song off of demon days by gorillas i love what they did with Bone Hollow, which is track five, because all of the sounds you've been hearing for the first four songs like come together. Bone Hollow has a nice melody. It has a good hip hop track. There's good rap lyrics and like the uh, the, the back the backbeat still really good. It's like a real good like come together. And I'm like, okay, this guy has so far pretty impressed me. I I, I clicked like on most of the first songs I listened to on Spotify. Then you get to the second third of the album, and I'm like, what the fuck is happening? My notes for APC and Frozen Chinchilla were, what the fuck am I listening to? What is happening? Oh, yeah. Some of those are really weird. Uh, But, like, Villains is really good. 
And like Digital Animal and Rational Beating. Yeah, but those those are later in the album. So it's, it's just like the middle handful of songs. I'm like, what is happening? So Digital Animal comes by, which is track 10, and it's like, okay. I love that song so much. If I can say, Digital Animal and Ambulance, it sounds like a two-part song by Die Antwoord. <laughs> the second verse of Digital Animal slaps. He's using like uh, triplets in the rap, like out of nowhere. So it's like... And it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, that was great. Yeah, that kind of fast rap. Yeah, really rhythmically unique. Yeah, I really dug that kind of stuff. Just as a drummer, whenever you just throw triplets into like an already fast rhythm, it's like, it's very sexy. My favorite song, because I said Zookeeper was really up there, but my favorite song was Rational Beating. It's a really good song. Yeah, because Ambulance kind of ends abruptly and Rational Beating just boom comes in and uh you know you get the weird kind of like funky music tracks going on in the background and uh, the bass line is amazing overall i think the album was strange it's not it's not, the, it's not <laughs> strange the type, it's not the type of hip-hop that was mainstream in 2008 but that is what made it interesting to listen to uh, yeah because rap around that time was fucking boring who would you recommend this album for what kind of people this is the kind of song where it's like, if you like hip-hop you prefer hip-hop for like the kind of like almost like angry punkiness of it which i mean like the best hip-hop is that but it's like you're looking for something that is experimental that's a big word experimental and trancey a bit like if you're not afraid of basically if you're not going to be afraid of people shouting screaming and doing experimental stuff and you like hip-hop you're gonna like this album for sure if you had to rate this album our famous rating system right. if you had to rate it between a kick in the balls <laughs> And the pain one might experience during childbirth, whereabouts would you put it? Aren't those both really bad things? Which, yeah, but which one speaks to you as being this album? Um, what? It's a simple question. Kicking the balls or the pain you might experience during childbirth? I, I, guess, um, I guess a kick in the balls, you know. Yeah? There's a bit of a high, but most of it's like, you know, ah, oh, man. You know, like, I don't have, like, a beautiful baby at the end of it, where it's like, oh, I will cherish this forever. It's just like, man, that was extreme. But, God, fuck. <laughs> wow, I wasn't ex- expecting you to read into the rating system that much, but okay. I mean, you have to, I'm trying to do something with it. <laughs> it's more bizarre than the album. Are you saying that people won't love my rating system? I'm saying it's not consistent, but hey, all right. All right. So you gave me, his name was Ian. Yeah. Chariots for Hire. Yes. Which, firstly, fuck you for giving me this. Because you know I'm a critical bastard. Right. And you didn't give me a big superstar. You gave me, like... An indie band. Your hometown band, pretty much, right? Yeah. Which, I don't want to get up on here and be like, Oh, you, you guys need to... Ch- you, this wasn't very good, was it? And then be like, you know... I don't want to rip on it. I mean, like, if, if someone I, gave us, like, ourselves and we were like... Are you, are you saying that indie musicians don't deserve the same amount of criticism as famous musicians? Alright, fine. Let's rip the shit out of them then. They don't exist anymore, if that makes you feel any better. It does. Firstly, I really like the name and the album artwork. Oh, God. That artwork's really cool. The artwork's cool. really cool. Uh, it doesn't prepare you for what it is, though. Especially with the name. The name, his name was Iron. And the album artwork, but yeah. RT, kind of like horses and like, you know. Yeah. Like, it makes you think of like... Um, a less kind of on the nose, but like Iron Maiden-y kind of like 
the name kind of iron, but you know, right? Like referencing actual like hard metals, kind of medievalish. I want to say it, it makes yeah. you think of that era. It's not like I thought it was going to be that. I even introduced this to me as being like southern metal, which of... is not at all what it is. Some of it it's, is. Well, there's aspects of it, but mostly it isn't. It's very much mid two thousands post hardcore. Yeah. Bring Me the Horizon, it's Asking Alexandria. A little bit into Shikari, which, to be honest, I think if, if my childhood wasn't oversaturated with that kind of stuff, I would have found the album more surprising and entertaining. There were some like real solid points. I will say like this kind of music, I think, is best experienced live. You want some kind of movement. You want to be jumping up and down. The, the main issue I kind of had with it was that I just found overall the album kind of lacked surprises for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, when I hear the start of a song, I know where it's going to go. I know, okay, he's screaming a bit here in the verses, and there's a bit of, like, an off-kilter guitar riff. And then we go into the chorus, the guitar's going to be down tempo, and the vocals are going to come in singing. It's very predictable like that. And I think if you're into this kind of style and you haven't heard this band, check them out. Because the quality of the performances, the quality of the singing, the overall songwriting is solid and like well made. I, I just found for me personally, it didn't have enough surprises in it. I just kind of knew where every song was going to go. And stylistically, there weren't any songs that kind of jumped out too much. I do have a few uh, songs and notes that I want to talk about. Uh, my favourite, um, which I don't know if this would surprise you or not, was uh, Down With The Thickness. That's mine too. That's because it's really, if you've ever listened to a hardcore punk band called The Gallows, they're now fronted by the singer from Bring Me The Horizon, I think. Oh, funny. Yeah, because their actual vocalist left. They're a lot less British sounding because of it. Right. But uh, their originals, if you like this song, Down the Thickness, check out The Gallows, because it's got that kind of like slightly discordant, stabby, guitar leady kind of stuff that mm-hmm. sounds really nice and edgy and kind of just cuts through. Like Down the Thickness, totally like hardcore punky. Other songs that are kind of like that, Small Islands Keep Secrets. Yeah. It's another really punky one with a, a staccato kind of like discordant on the beat guitar riffy thing. It's 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 Which, one of the more attention grabbing of the yeah. of the songs on the album. It's it, I think the tonality of it and the rhythm of it helps it kind of like stick out. Yeah. yeah. Really good melodies in How About a Little Fire. And that's yeah. again the thing of like the quality of the songwriting and the melodies of everything are, are really well done. There's quite a few like clichés in the lyrics like uh, like guilty heart heavy hands. Yeah. Um the drums are really good in that song. Yeah, it, that's that's um, that is the man who taught me how to play drums. Yeah, and this is another thing I'll say is that one of the most interesting things for me about this was um knowing that this guy taught you drums. That will alone make me kind of involved because I'll be like it's part of your history so I'll, I'll check right. it out. Again, stylistically it's not something that's too out of my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. I need more surprises. Right. And overall, the album didn't really give me that much of that. There were some nice little punky numbers. There's one song I didn't really like that much because I thought the melodies were kind of cheesy, but it shows a bit of a different influence, and that's uh, The Fallen. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. So it does sound like a, it kind of sounds like a completely like, yeah, different... Yeah, um, you can tell like these are guys who like the history of hard rock. Yeah. Because the riff is very kind of... It's a lot more going back to 70s hard rock post-Zeppelin mm-hmm. style. Yeah low guitar riffing um the same i think the fool yeah oh i think the fool is the one that i thought was really old school hard rock in its riffs and that sounds like a 70s rock song as well the fool and like just the lyrics itself where it's like it's almost progressive they're like telling a story yeah it's like medieval so like overall 
I think there were certain things I really liked about it. Um, I like the way they presented themselves. I like the artwork. I like the name. To attest what you said earlier, they are pretty kick-ass live. I went to see yeah. them when I was a kid. Again, like I think this is a type of band that I would adore live, but if I'm listening to the album on my own, kind of in a more critical sense, nothing's really jumping out at me that much. And it's again one of those things, and we know better than anyone now that we've actually recorded an album. Yeah. Having an album where all the songs and like all the instrumentation is performed perfectly, it's a lot harder than it sounds. Just saying that the instruments were all recorded very well, that's still good praise. Like you should still take that on its head. Right. And again, we did things in a much more difficult way, not using click tracks and stuff. Right. But like everything sounds professional and it's good. I think it was the first band I heard of this style that would blow my mind. But because I'd already heard all those bands of that era, you know, the rhythm sections are good, some yeah. good guitarists, some good singing, some good songs. And, and that's a fair judgment. But, this album's from 2010. So, yeah. like, that, that sound had been around for some time. Yeah. You know, like, they were not before asking Alexandria and, like, yeah. bring me the horizon. But, yeah, like, it's got good energy to it. So, not uh, a surprise for me personally. If you're a fan of that era, there's a good chance you won't have heard of this band because they're not a massive band. Right. So, check them out because you might really like it. It might speak to you a lot. And, uh... Kicking the balls or giving birth? Uh, kicking the balls or giving birth? I would say giving birth. Okay. Because it was more of like a drawn out, like, ah, kind of <laughs> process. There wasn't like a sharp stab of, ooh, what's yeah. this? It was always kind of like a, whoa. It was like a, whoa. Like oh, a, whoa. So I would right. say more akin to giving birth than being kicked in the balls. I'll give you this. Your rating systems are interesting. There you go. That's what we want. That's about the show. That's the show, man. That's about the show. Next week, we're talking video game music. It's something I'm very passionate yeah, about. Yeah, me too. We're lining it up in time for E3. Oh, yeah. Because uh, the E3 Game Festival is coming out soon. You should also mention up top, this was also a suggestion by a listener. Uh, Shiny Raichu, shout out to you. Yeah, shout out. Thanks shout for, out to Thanks you. for giving us some ideas. If you all want to hear some specific topics discussed in the future, leave a comment. Uh, we'd love to hear what you want to hear about because, you know, we always love talking about music. Yeah. That's it. You were here with D-O-M-M Podcast. And you'll see us again next week. At some point or the week after. At some point or the week after. Yeah. You'll see us soon. Oh, you'll see us soon. Yeah. Um, like those we're neighbors. We're going to keep this that, yeah. kind of drill, drill down so we can... Yeah. Like, those neighbors who, like, you know, they come over spontaneously. But, like, you know, like, they're not going to come every single day. But they'll be there. And they'll leave you, like, a rhubarb crumble. And it's like, oh, hey, good to see you. Yeah, like you weren't expecting it, you weren't waiting for it, but here I am in my living room and I've got a rhubarb crumble. And if you were waiting for it, then it, it makes that rhubarb crumble taste even better. Does it? Maybe a surprise know. rhubarb crumble is better. Well, yeah, but do you ever expect a rhubarb crumble? Or is that just like a farm thing from England, you fucking hick? You're a fucking prick. <laughs> That's my mother. My mother. My mother is a saint. My mother cooks a damn good rhubarb crumble and you've insulted my... Insulted. You have insulted my whole family. I didn't mean to. I've just never had one. I'm uncultured. We hope you find your own rhubarb crumble out of this episode. Yeah, and look forward to the next one. And the one after. Yeah, and then maybe we'll spice it up like a peach cobbler, because, you know, I don't know what a rhubarb whatever is. What the fuck is a peach cobbler? It's delicious is what it is. What is it? It's from the south. It's delicious. Cobbler.